Psalm number 21 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie. The Treasury of David, Volume 1, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm number 14. Subject. The title gives us but little information. It is simply, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, probably written by David, sung by David, relating to David, and intended by David to refer in its fullest reach of meaning to David's Lord. It is evidently the fit companion of Psalm 20, and is in its proper position next to it. Psalm 20 anticipates what this regards as realized. If we pray today for a benefit and receive it, we must, ere the sun goes down, praise God for that mercy, or we deserve to be denied the next time. It has been called David's triumphant song, and we may remember it as the royal triumphal ode. The king is most prominent throughout, and we shall read it to true prophet if our meditation of him shall be sweet while perusing it. We must crown him with the glory of our salvation, singing of his love and praising his power. The next psalm will take us to the foot of the cross. This introduces us to the steps of the throne. Division The division of the translators will answer every purpose. A thanksgiving for victory, verses 1 to six confidence of further success verses seven to thirteen exposition verse one the king shall joy in thy strength o lord and in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice verse two thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholden the request of his lips Selah. verse three for thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. Verse 4. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even length of days, for ever and ever. Verse 5. His glory is great in thy salvation, honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. Verse 6. For thou hast made him most blessed for ever, thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. 1. The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord. Jesus is a royal personage. The question, Art thou a king then, received a full answer from the Saviour's lips. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this purpose came I into this world that I might bear witness unto the truth. He is not merely a king, but the king, king over minds and hearts, reigning with a dominion of love, before which all other rule is but mere brute force. He was proclaimed king even on the cross, for there, indeed, to the eye of faith, he reigned as on a throne, blessing with more than imperial munificence the needy sons of earth. Jesus has wrought out the salvation of his people, but as a man he found his strength in Jehovah his God, to whom he addressed himself in prayer upon the lonely mountain's side, 
and in the garden's solitary gloom. That strength so abundantly given is here gratefully acknowledged and made the subject of joy. The man of sorrows is now anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Returned in triumph from the overthrow of all his foes, he offers his own rapturous te deum in the temple above, and joys in the power of the Lord. Herein let every subject of King Jesus imitate the king. Let us lean upon Jehovah's strength. Let us joy in it by unstaggering faith. Let us exult in it in our thankful songs. Jesus not only has thus rejoiced, but he shall do so as he sees the power of divine grace bringing out from their sinful hiding places the purchase of his soul's travail. We also shall rejoice more and more as we learn by experience more and more fully the strength of the arm of our covenant God. Our weakness unstrings our harps, but his strength tunes them anew. If we cannot sing a note in honor of our own strength, we can at any rate rejoice in our omnipotent God. And in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice! Everything is ascribed to God, the source is thy strength, and the stream is thy salvation. Jehovah planned and ordained it, works it and crowns it, and therefore it is his salvation. The joy here spoken of is described by a note of exclamation and a word of wonder, how greatly! The rejoicing of our risen Lord must, like his agony, be unutterable. If the mountains of his joy rise in proportion to the depth of the valleys of his grief, then his sacred bliss is high as the seventh heaven. For the joy which was set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now that joy daily grows, for he rests in his love and rejoices over his redeemed with singing, as in due order they are brought to find their salvation in his blood. Let us with our Lord rejoice in salvation, as coming from God, as coming to us, as extending itself to others, and as soon to encompass all lands. We need not be afraid of too much rejoicing in this respect. This solid foundation will well sustain the loftiest edifice of joy. The shoutings of the early Methodists in the excitement of the joy were far more pardonable than our own lukewarmness. Our joy should have some sort of inexpressibleness in it. Verse 2. Thou hast given him his heart's desire. That desire he ardently pursued when he was on earth, both by his prayer, his actions, and his suffering, he manifested that his heart longed to redeem his people, and now in heaven he has his desire granted him, for he sees his beloved coming to be with him where he is. The desires of the Lord Jesus were from his heart, and the Lord heard them. If our hearts are right with God, he will in our case also fulfill the desire of them that fear him and hast not withholden the request of his lips. What is in the well of the heart is sure to come up in the bucket of the lips, and those are the only true prayers 
where the heart's desire is first, and the lip's request follows after. Jesus prayed vocally as well as mentally. Speech is a great assistance to thought. Some of us feel that even when alone we find it easier to collect our thoughts when we can pray aloud. The requests of the Savior were not withheld. He was and still is a prevailing pleader. Our Advocate on high returns not empty from the throne of grace. He asked for his elect in the eternal council chamber. He asked for blessings for them here. He asked for glory for them hereafter. And his requests have speeded. He is ready to ask for us at the mercy seat. Have we not at this hour some desire to send up to his Father by him? Let us not be slack to use our willing, loving, all-prevailing intercessor. Selah. Here a pause is very properly inserted, that we may admire the blessed success of the king's prayers, and that we may prepare our own requests, which may be presented through him. If we had a few more quiet rests, a few more selahs in our public worship, it might be profitable. Verse 3. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. The word prevent formerly signified to precede or go before, and assuredly Jehovah preceded his son with blessings. Before he died, saints were saved by the anticipated merit of his death. Before he came, believers saw his day and were glad, and he himself had his delights with the sons of men. The Father is so willing to give blessings through his Son, that instead of his being constrained to bestow his grace, he outstrips the mediatorial march of mercy. I say not that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. Before Jesus calls, the Father answers, and while he is yet speaking, he hears. Mercies may be bought with blood, but they are also freely given. The love of Jehovah is not caused by the Redeemer's sacrifice, but that love, with its blessings of goodness, preceded the great atonement, and provided it for our salvation. Reader, it will be a happy thing for thee, if, like thy Lord, thou canst see both providence and grace preceding thee, forestalling thy needs, and preparing thy path. Mercy, in the case of many of us, ran before our desires and prayers, and it ever outruns our endeavors and expectancies, and even our hopes are left to lag behind. Prevenient grace deserves a song. We may make one out of this sentence. Let us try. All our mercies are to be viewed as blessings, gifts of a blessed God, meant to make us blessed. They are blessings of goodness, not of merit, but of free favor, and they come to us in a preventing way, a way of prudent foresight, such as only preventing love could have arranged. In this light, the verse is itself a sonnet. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. Jesus wore the thorn crown, but now wears the glory crown. It is a crown, indicating royal nature, imperial power, deserved honor, 
glorious conquest and divine government. The crown is of the richest, rarest, most resplendent, and most lasting order, gold, and that gold of the most refined and valuable sort, pure gold, to indicate the excellence of his dominion. This crown is set upon his head most firmly, and whereas other monarchs find their diadems fitting loosely, his is fixed so that no power can move it, for Jehovah himself has set it upon his brow. Napoleon crowned himself, but Jehovah crowned the Lord Jesus. The empire of the one melted in an hour, but the other has an abiding dominion. Some versions read, A crown of precious stones. This may remind us of those beloved ones who shall be as jewels in his crown, of whom he has said, They shall be mine in the day when I make up my jewels. May we be set in the golden circlet of the Redeemer's glory and adorn his head for ever. Verse 4 He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even length of days for ever and ever. The first words may suit King David, but the length of days for ever and ever can only refer to the King Messiah. Jesus as man prayed for resurrection, and he received it, and now possesses it in immortality. He died once, but being raised from the dead, he dieth no more. Because I live, ye shall live also, is the delightful intimation which the Savior gives us, that we are partakers of his eternal life. We had never found this jewel if he had not rolled away the stone which covered it. Verse 5. His glory is great in thy salvation. Emmanuel bears the palm. He once bore the cross. The Father has glorified his Son, so that there is no glory like unto that which surroundeth him. See his person as it is described by John in the Revelation. See his dominion as it stretches from sea to sea. See his splendor as he is revealed in flaming fire. Lord, who is like unto thee? Solomon in all his glory could not be compared with thee, thou once despised man of Nazareth. Mark, reader, salvation is ascribed to God, and thus the Son, as our Savior, magnifies his Father, but the Son's glory is also greatly seen, for the Father glorifies his Son. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. Parkhurst reads, Splendor and beauty. These are put upon Jesus as chains of gold, and stars and tokens of honor are placed upon princes and great men. As the wood of the tabernacle was overlaid with pure gold, so is Jesus covered with glory and honor. If there be a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory for his humble followers, what must there be for our Lord himself? The whole weight of sin was laid upon him. It is but meet that the full measure of the glory of bearing it away should be laid upon the same beloved person. A glory commensurate with his shame he must and will receive, for well has he earned it. It is not possible for us to honor Jesus too much. What our God delights to do 
we may certainly do to our utmost. Oh, for new crowns, for the lofty brow which once was marred with thorns! Let him be crowned with majesty, who bowed his head to death, and be his honors sounded high by all things that have breath. Verse 6 For thou hast made him most blessed for ever. He is most blessed in himself, for he is God over all, blessed for ever. But this relates to him as our mediator, in which capacity blessedness is given to him as a reward. The margin has it, Thou hast set him to be blessings. He is an overflowing wellspring of blessings to others, a sun filling the universe with light. According as the Lord swear unto Abraham, the promised seed is an everlasting source of blessings to all the nations of the earth. He is set for this, ordained, appointed, made incarnate with this very design that he may bless the sons of men. Oh, that sinners had sense enough to use the Savior for that end to which he is ordained, to be a Savior to lost and guilty souls. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. He who is a blessing to others cannot but be glad himself. The unbounded good-doing of Jesus ensures him unlimited joy. The loving favor of his Father, the countenance of God, gives Jesus exceeding joy. This is the purest stream to drink of, and Jesus chooses no other. His joy is full. Its source is divine. Its continuance eternal. Its degree exceeding all bounds. The countenance of God makes the Prince of Heaven glad. How ought we to seek it, and how careful should we be, lest we should provoke him by our sins to hide his face from us? Our anticipations may cheerfully fly forward to the hour when the joy of our Lord shall be shed abroad on all the saints, and the countenance of Jehovah shall shine upon all the blood bought. So shall we enter into the joy of our Lord. So far all has been the shout of them that triumph, the song of them that feast. Let us shout and sing with them, for Jesus is our King, and in his triumphs we share a part. Verse 7 For the King trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Verse 8 Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies, thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Verse 9 Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Verse 10 Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. Verse 11 for they intended evil against thee, they imagined a mischievous device, which they are not able to perform. Verse 12. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back, when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Verse 13. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so will we sing and praise thy power. Verse 7. For the king trusteth in the Lord. 
our lord like a true king and leader was a master in the use of the weapons and could handle well the shield of faith for he has set us a brilliant example of unwavering confidence in god he felt himself safe in his father's care until his hour was come he knew that he was always heard in heaven he committed his cause to him that judgeth right and in his last moments he committed his spirit into the same hands the joy expressed in the former verses was the joy of faith and the victory achieved was due to the same precious grace a holy confidence in jehovah is the true mother of victories this psalm of triumph was composed long before our lord's conflict began but faith overleaps the boundaries of time and chants her io triumph while yet she sings her battle song through the mercy of the most high he shall not be moved eternal mercy secures the mediatorial throne of jesus he who is most high in every sense engages all his infinite perfections to maintain the throne of grace upon which our king in zion reigns he was not moved from his purpose nor in his sufferings nor by his enemies nor shall he be moved from the completion of his designs he is the same yesterday today and forever other empires are dissolved by the lapse of years but eternal mercy maintains his growing dominion evermore other kings fail because they rest upon an arm of flesh but our monarch reigns on in splendor because he trusteth in jehovah it is a great display of divine mercy to men that the throne of king jesus is still among them nothing but divine mercy could sustain it for human malice would overturn it to-morrow if it could we ought to trust in god for the promotion of the redeemer's kingdom for in jehovah the king himself trusts all unbelieving methods of action and especially all reliance upon mere human ability should be forever discarded from a kingdom where the monarch sets the example of walking by faith in god verse eight thine hand shall find out all thine enemies thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee the destruction of the wicked is a fitting subject for joy to the friends of righteousness hence here and in most scriptural songs it is noted with calm thanksgiving thou hast put down the mighty from their seats is a note of the same song which sings and hast exalted them of low degree we pity the lost for they are men but we cannot pity them as enemies of christ none can escape from the wrath of the victorious king nor is it desirable that they should without looking for his flying foes he will find them with his hand for his presence is about and around them in vain shall any hope for escape he will find out all and be able to punish all and that too with the ease and rapidity which belong to the warrior's right hand the finding out relates we think not only to the discovery of the hiding places of the haters of god but to the touching of them in their tenderest parts so as to cause the severest suffering 
when he appears to judge the world, hard hearts will be subdued into terror, and proud spirits humbled into shame. He who has the key of human nature can touch all its springs at his will, and find out the means of bringing the utmost confusion and terror upon those who aforetime boastfully expressed their hatred of him. Verse 9. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. They themselves shall be an oven to themselves, and so their own tormentors. Those who burned with anger against thee shall be burned by thine anger. The fire of sin will be followed by the fire of wrath. Even as the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah went up to heaven, so shall the enemies of the Lord Jesus be utterly and terribly consumed. Some read it, thou shalt put them, as it were, into a furnace of fire. Like faggots cast into an oven, they shall burn furiously beneath the anger of the Lord. They shall be cast into a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are terrible words, and those teachers do not well who endeavor by their sophistical reasonings to weaken their force. Reader, never tolerate slight thoughts of hell, or you will soon have low thoughts of sin. The hell of sinners must be fearful beyond all conception, or such language as the present would not be used. Who would have the Son of God to be his enemy when such an overthrow awaits his foes? The expression, the time of thine anger, reminds us that as now is the time of his grace, so there will be a set time for his wrath. The judge goes upon a size at an appointed time. There is a day of vengeance of our God. Let those who despise the day of grace remember this day of wrath. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Jehovah will himself visit with his anger the enemies of his Son. The Lord Jesus will, as it were, judge by commission from God, whose solemn assent and cooperation shall be with him in his sentences upon impenitent sinners. An utter destruction of soul and body, so that both shall be swallowed up with misery and be devoured with anguish, is here intended. O oh, the wrath to come! The wrath to come! Who can endure it? Lord, save us from it! For Jesus' sake. Verse 10. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth. Their life's work shall be a failure, and the result of their toil shall be disappointment. That in which they prided themselves shall be forgotten. Their very names shall be wiped out as abominable, and their seed from among the children of men. Their posterity following in their footsteps shall meet with similar overthrow till at last the race shall come to an end. Doubtless, the blessing of God is often handed down by the righteous to their sons as almost an heirloom in the family, while the dying sinner bequeaths a curse to his descendants. If men will hate the Son of God, they must not wonder if their own sons meet with no favor. Verse 11. For they intended evil against thee. God takes notice of intentions. He who would but could not is as guilty as he who did. 
Christ's church and cause are not only attacked by those who do not understand it, but there are many who have the light and yet hate it. Intentional evil has a virus in it which is not found in sins of ignorance. Now, as ungodly men with malice aforethought attack the gospel of Christ, their crime is great, and their punishment will be proportionate. The words against thee show us that he who intends evil against the poorest believer means ill to the king himself. Let persecutors beware. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Want of power is the clog on the foot of the haters of the Lord Jesus. They have the wickedness to imagine, and the cunning to devise, and the malice to plot mischief. But blessed be God, they fail in ability, yet they shall be judged as to their hearts, and the will shall be taken for the deed in the great day of account. When we read the boastful threatenings of the enemies of the gospel at the present day, we may close our reading by cheerfully repeating, which they are not able to perform. The serpent may hiss, but his head is broken. The lion may worry, but he cannot devour. The tempest may thunder, but cannot strike. Old giant Pope bites his nails at the pilgrims, but he cannot pick their bones as aforetime, growling forth a hideous non-possumus. The devil and all his allies retire in dismay from the walls of Zion, for the Lord is there. Verse 12. Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back, when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. For a time the foes of God may make bold advances, and threaten to overthrow everything, but a few ticks of the clock will alter the face of their affairs. At first they advance impudently enough, but Jehovah meets them to their teeth, and a taste of the sharp judgments of God speedily makes them flee in dismay. The original has in it the thought of the wicked being set as a butt for God to shoot at, a target for his wrath to aim at. What a dreadful situation! As an illustration upon a large scale, remember Jerusalem during the siege, and for a specimen in an individual, read the story of the deathbed of Francis Spira. God takes sure aim. Who would be his target? His arrows are sharp and transfix the heart. Who would wish to be wounded by them? Ah, ye enemies of God, your boastings will soon be over when once the shafts begin to fly. Verse 13. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength. A sweet concluding verse. Our hearts shall join in it. It is always right to praise the Lord when we call to remembrance his goodness to his son and the overthrow of his foes. The exaltation of the name of God should be the business of every Christian, but since such poor things as we fail to honor him as he deserves, we may invoke his own power to aid us. Be high, O God, but do thou maintain thy loftiness by thine own almightiness, for no other power can worthily do it. So will we sing and praise thy power. For a time the saints may mourn, 
but the glorious appearance of their divine helper awakens their joy. Joy should always flow in the channel of praise. All the attributes of God are fitting subjects to be celebrated by the music of our hearts and voices, and when we observe a display of his power, we must extol it. He wrought our deliverance alone, and he alone shall have the praise. End of Psalm 21 Recording by Stephanie, Savannah, Georgia